And then from there, I bridged up to Jarier, and then that's kind of how the final kind of played out amongst the three of us. At least that's my recollection. And like you said, there's no, not a lot of evidence. So we'll just take that as fact. (laughs) Welcome to the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast. I'm Matthew Pioro, and joining me once again is web editor Matt Hansen. Matt Hansen, so good to have you back. It's so good to talk to you again, Matthew Pioro. It's been a long time. Well, it, it hasn't been a long time since we've spoken, but it has been a bit since we got you on the podcast. It's crazy. Like, we're in the same office, same city, yet somehow we can't manage this podcast thing. But, you know, your hair's on fire most of the day feeding the website, so you're a, you're a busy guy. That's true. That's true. My hair is on fire because it also looks great. Um, yes. On this episode, it's a big one, actually. I have a, an in-depth interview with Ryan Roth. Did you know it was pronounced Roth? I, I know that we called him Ryan Roth a lot uh, because I've known him since he was, I think, a little kid, like a junior. Uh, and I think we called him Roth for 10 years before someone told me that it's Roth. I think it's like the Demi Moore kind of thing. It was Demi Moore. And then one day it was Demi Moore. We've been saying her name wrong. Barbara Streisand. So, yeah, Ryan Roth. Well, Ryan is actually really good about it. He's really easygoing about how people butcher his last name. But you did touch on something that he's... um. He's a quiet guy. I mean, he was he was great to interview, but he's known as a quiet guy. But um, I want to just remind people more about who he was as a rider. He rode right up until uh, 2019, but uh, he got his start on, I think it was, was it Jet Fuel? Uh, yeah, that's what I'm, I mean, I, I remember him as a junior. He was an outstanding junior, and then he came on with another uh, guy, Buck Miller. They were sort of pals, and they came on Jet Fuel when they were probably 18. Mm-hmm. Buck Miller, friend of the podcast. Yep. Good old Bucky. That's when I got to know him pretty well. Ryan Roth. Roth. And now it's Roth. <laughs> but then he was on Team Race Pro, which morphed into Spider Tech powered by C10. And then once that team folded, he spent one year on Champion System. And then he was on Silver Pro Cycling for about five years. And it was on Silver Pro. It's almost like the second act of his career. He was the um, older rider on the team, and he was really influential on a bunch of younger riders who are racing today. I'm thinking of Benjamin Perry and Alex Catterford, who I do talk to in this episode as well, because uh, I caught up with him on his first rest day at the Giro. Alex Catterford said that Roth is, this is Catterford's words, the silent killer. Quiet, humble, but like very smart and very strong in the races. I mean, he was always such, you know, he was a talented, he had a motor, obviously, but he was a good time trialist too, right? And I think a lot of times time trialists have to be, you know, obviously super focused, but he uh, he had that motor and he could focus on anything in a race. He could solo away, but he also, remember, he won the National Crit Championships. I mean, he was a pretty versatile rider. Also, and I don't know how many times he's posted this on Facebook, but uh, he likes to post this one video where he beat Michael Woods in a hill climb competition. It was, Woods was early in his cycling career. And um, yeah, it's pretty funny that uh, even though Woods was obviously showing his talent there, Roth still had the uh, the skills and the, the savvy to uh, make it to the top of the hill first. Yeah, it might have been a short hill, but it was still he beat him. That's for sure. It, yes, it was an Ontario hill. Yeah. <laughs> Who else did we talk to? So not only do we talk to, to Ryan Roth and Alex Catterford, but um, we've talked with our friend Kevin Field once again. He never goes away. He always keeps coming back, this guy. Well, he is um, got more knowledge than, I don't know, your average bear, let's say, on Canadian cycling. He is a font. He's a definite font. And, uh, well, his connection with, directly to Roth is that the year Roth won Trobro Leon, uh, Kevin was in the car. He was the sport director of Spider Tech, powered by C10. So Kevin does a great job of setting the scene, uh, what it was like way back ten years ago, when um, when Spider Tech was in Europe for its uh, second sort of season of racing abroad. What a tough race too that looks like. I mean, I think they they call it what the hell of the West or Le Petit Paris Roubaix or something like that, and you can see why. I mean, it just looks. You know, just like a super tough race in Brittany. The weather's probably always awful. 
probably raining all the time, but those roads. So I, I can see why Roth would do so well on that, you know, with his toughness. Exactly. And we are speaking, and this episode is coming out just before this year's edition of uh, Trobro Leon. And it's, of course, the 10th anniversary, or just a little past the 10th anniversary of Roth's win. And we get into the famous prize at Trobro Leon, which is a pig. But do you know who wins the pig exactly? I'm not familiar with the pig prize uh, protocol. You aren't. The PPP. <laughs> I know there's a pig. That's all I know. I don't know. I thought the winner gets it. Aha. It is not the first person to cross the line who gets the pig. It is the best place Breton, the best place rider from that region of France who gets the pig. Before we get into Trobro 10 years ago, as I mentioned we're going to catch up with Alex Catterford. What was exciting t- today, what, as we're recording, or just before we, we switched on the mics here, is that Catterford was in the breakaway. You know, what he, one thing he said about, um, you know, about the uh, picking your brakes over the stages, I mean, it really showed. I think it's really neat that we spoke to him yesterday, you spoke to him yesterday, and here he is now in, in the break, you know, have, picking his moment. Uh, that was neat to see. And I think what listeners will hear in this interview is maybe what is to come for Catterford later in the race. And we definitely hope that um, we can catch up with him again on some of the rest days that lie ahead. There are three, after all. There are three. Yeah, there's three this year because of the transfer on the rest day. Right. He even said that in the interview. He did. I paid attention. That I conducted. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) No, really, I do listen when I'm, I'm asking these questions. It's true. All right, let's get on with it, shall we? Alex Catterford, it is the first rest day of the Giro. You woke up in Hungary, where the first three stages were. Now you are in Sicily. Have you managed to rest much on your rest day? Uh, yeah, actually, um, Usually it's a rule with the UCI that they're, you're not supposed to travel on a rest day, but I guess because we got an extra rest day, nor like we have three this Giro instead of two, so we get an extra one. So I guess they made an exception. But you know what it is? Actually, they were they're quite good about it. The logistics was pretty dialed. So all the bags and equipment and bikes went last night overnight. So they were all here when we arrived, and they had a hotel close to the airport, charter flight here. And the hotel here is close to the airport, so it was actually it was quite seamless. I was I was quite impressed by how they handled it. How do you prefer to spend your rest days? Do you like to get in um, some hard efforts on the bike to keep the legs working, or do you really like to take it easy? For me, it's somewhere in the middle. Like every rider is individual. Like for example, some guys on the team today went out and did two hours with lots of efforts. Some guys didn't ride at all. I always do like an hour to an hour and a half with some like little efforts a bit of tempo even for five minutes or something but i don't also go too crazy i don't feel like i need to stay super opened up but also i can't shut it down a hundred percent either so before the giro what was your preparation like uh it was pretty good like we had a pretty solid race program coming into this with um you know i did bass country which is one of the harder week-long stage races you can do and then went into Romandy and then into the Giro. So it was actually quite a good preparation. The Giro was always, um, you know, the the plan throughout the year. So my calendar and schedule has stayed pretty much like on target for what we wanted going into the Giro. So I feel like I had a good preparation coming in. And tell me more about the team's plan for this Giro and your role in it. Um, so we kind of have like two um, two different ideas here at the Giro. So number one, they did bring. Um, with Yakimo and the full lead-out train, that's actually the majority of the team. That's probably six guys in the team are dedicated towards that. So that's when the main focus is for Yakimo in the sprint stages to get that done. So he has the full lead-out train there with him. But then they also did bring a couple other riders like me and um, Alessandro DeMarchi. And us will be looking more for you know the opportunities and the breakaways and for stage results as we get into the lumpier and hillier terrain in the second half of this race. Um, so that's kind of what we'll be looking for. We don't have any GC ambitions here, if anybody, which um, is pretty normal nowadays for teams. Like, unless you've really targeted the GC from eight, nine months out, it's kind of a better approach to go in with the mindset for stages. 
I'm guessing you don't want to reveal what stages you have your eyes on. You know, you don't want to show your hand to your competitors. But are there stages you've sort of made note of that you think are, oh, I might have a good opportunity here or that one might suit me? Uh, yeah, I've definitely looked through the roadbook. There's a bunch of stages in the last 10 days that have the possibility of the break going to the line. There's a couple of stages that I've earmarked, but what I've always said and what my coach has always told me is you have to choose the right break, not the right stage is what matters. So, you know, it could be a stage that on paper looks good for a breakaway, but if there's only four guys or three guys who go up the road, then it's not worth it. Whereas if you have 10 or 12 guys who are strong and can make it to the line, that's when you want to be. So as much as you can kind of plan ahead and look at the stages, you also, um, it depends a lot on when the break is going and who's in the break, and then you got to make a decision on the road. Right. It's a quick decision that you uh, really don't have a lot of time to uh, hum and haw over. Yeah, for sure. For sure. The team did uh, reconnaissance of stage one, and what did that tell you? Uh, stage one was good because it was actually, it was kudos on the Giro. It was quite an interesting finish because it was an uphill, but it wasn't so hard that it was just for the climbers, but it wasn't it was right on the limit for the sprinters. So it was quite interesting. So um, we actually, when we rode it in the end, Yakimo thought he could go for the sprint. So then the plan was all centered around Yakimo in the last 800 meters is kind of when he started to lose the group and I was there pacing him, but we didn't manage to, you know, um, smooth it out and get back on in the last 800 meters. So we kind of missed out on a stage result there, but, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting finish for the first day of the Giro. And how was the time trial for you on stage two? Uh, time trial was mostly just taking it as easy as I could. Um, like normally, time trials is something I targeted in the past, but given this one, especially a punchy prologue, not prologue, sorry, punchy short time trial, it wasn't really up my alley. So you also have to pick and choose your days in the Grand Tour. So really, it was um, not putting in an all-out effort to save the legs for the upcoming days and weeks. I was wondering about that because when I, I noticed your results and I thought, and, you know, you never want to make too many assumptions about what a rider's plans are versus what the results are, like it could have. But I was like, I wonder if he's saving something <laughs> for 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 up ahead. Yeah, for sure. Because especially on a course like that, you know, if I really gave it everything I had, maybe you finish 40th. But in the end, if you finish 40th or 100th, it's, it's not a really a big difference. Whereas um, the difference between making that really all-out effort versus saving your legs can uh, make a big difference later in the later in the tour and now stage three it was a sprint stage won by mark cavendish what did the say sprinters and the sprint train on your team learn from that uh particular stage a fair bit of stuff i mean i think they're gonna have to maybe think of a new approach because there's obviously some very strong other lead out teams here um so maybe as much as it is using their horsepower in the lead out, it's also capitalizing on the other teams that we're going to be smart with here. So I think they did learn some stuff there. In terms of like when I was there on that stage, I was mostly riding the front from 50k to go to about 10k to go to just keep them out of trouble. But yeah, for sure, the sprint train, they really put in a great effort, but it didn't quite pay out in the end. So I think they've, you know, gone back, looked at the video and stuff and are going to get some good takeaways from it. You face some really lumpy stages Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, including Stage Nine's finale at Blockhouse. What um, what are your thoughts on some of these very lumpy stages? Yeah, I mean, I think Stage Seven is actually really one of the first days where a strong breakaway could play for the win, especially um, after the time losses up Etna. But stage, so yeah, I think stage seven could be a breakaway. Stage eight, it's hard to say, and then stage nine, you know, it could be a breakaway. But honestly, in my opinion, the stage is so hard that I think it ended up being just a pure GC day because it's yeah, five thousand meters of climbing and one hundred ninety k. I think uh, even the winter's time will be pushing seven hours, so it'll be a it'll be a big day on the bike. All right, I'm going to make sure I'm I'm comfortable on the couch as I, I watch that stage on Sunday. Uh, for sure. For sure. It'd even be a good one because it actually starts off the gun quite hard. So I know, um, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but they're doing the whole coverage of the Giro and um, from start to finish. So the start will also be quite exciting, I think. Well, right on. Uh, thank you for making this time. And yeah, good luck. Good luck at all these lumpy, hilly stages. Perfect. Thanks so much.
Kevin, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. I'm going to talk to Ryan Roth in a little bit about his win at Trobro Leon in 2012. You were there with Ryan. He was riding on SpiderTech powered by C10, and you were the sport director. But you were both at Trobro Leon in 2011. Tell me about your 2011 experience of that race. Yeah, that's a great one because um, it's it's actually an amazing story about that team at that time. Trobro happened at the very end of uh, our first sort of European block of racing. And so the team was shattered, like really, really shattered. Um, everybody was tired, you know, frustrated and really needed a break. And we went into Trobro and... We didn't actually even do any like research on the race, you know, like we didn't really know much of anything about it at all, which is actually a little bit odd for me. I usually am pretty good at doing my research. It's true. But, <laughs> but we just went in because we were so shattered. We just went in and, uh, and then started to learn all about the history of the race and what we were getting ourselves into. Like, honestly, we, we didn't even know that there was gravel roads, you know, like we just kind of like rocked up. And figured it all out on the fly. So we were really unprepared, you know, relative to what you would expect for that kind of a race and for that level of team. You know, like if you're going into a race like that, you know, you just do all kinds of little special things. Like you change the tires out for your Paris-Roubaix tires. You have more wheels. You have different kinds of wheels. You bring in more staff to work certain sectors of gravel because, you know, the car is never going to be where you need it to be in a race like that. It's going to be all over the place. So you have to really rely on ground staff and different ground crews or jump crews to be at various points of the race. So we just showed up, like I said, we were just super, super tired and frustrated and blown out. And, uh, you know, we were starting to have little fights in the team even. And we got there and we found out all those stuff and we got there a little bit early. I can't remember why uh, but we were in probably a day before you normally would get in. And uh, I just remember everybody was tired. And so I said to the biker, I just gave them a whole bunch of cash. Like I just gave them like a handful of cash. And I said to them, I said, just, just go, go out, just go out. And, and, you know, the staff's not going to be with you guys. Just go have fun as a, as a team, do whatever you need to do. Right. He like, here's the keys to the car. Um, you know, here's a bunch of money <laughs> and just go have fun. And, and the guys came back and I kind of did that. Cause I was like, Oh my God, you know, like, what did we get ourselves into here? Because I realized that we came in completely unprepared and I just thought the race was going to be a little bit of a write-off, you know? And, uh, so instead of going out and trying to like cram for the exam, so to speak, by, you know, driving all kinds of sectors and doing all that kind of stuff, really trying to figure things out. We just decided to kind of say, you know, F it and we'll just take it as it comes. And let's just make sure everybody has a, has a chance to relax and goes into the race as sort of stress-free as possible. And that worked out pretty good. <laughs> but with, for Ryan, for Ryan that year, what was interesting was uh, uh, he was actually pretty sick, you know, like he just, we were coming to the end and you know, everybody's dealing with all kinds of like, kind of like body breakdown stuff. And Ryan had, uh, he, he just came to me and he said, Kev, I, I, I don't think I'm good enough to, to race. So I said, well, why don't you jump in the car with me? You know? So, because I did know like in a race like that, it's actually really difficult for like the mechanic was going to be really busy. The mechanic was Chad, uh, Grouchuina, who's got the Dundas speed shop there now. He's, super awesome guy. <clears throat> and I knew Chad was going to be super busy and it would be hard for us to keep track of information. And at least if we were, something was going to happen in the race, it was going to be really important for us to have good information in the car so we could keep track of what was going on. So I had uh, Ryan jump in the car. And so that's what he did in 2011, which I think was actually one of the best things he could possibly do in terms of getting ready for the race in the future in 2012, you know, is it like see it from the car and see the chaos and see the course and process all that stuff. So yeah, that's the story of 2011. 
Now, you said things went pretty well, and it's true. Uh, Will Routley, who was on the team at the time, was second, which is pretty amazing for you guys just showing up a little bit unprepared. To contrast then 2011 with 2012, what <laughs> I was going to say, what did you do differently? But I imagine you did a whole truckload of things differently when you showed up the following year. Yeah. So, I mean, the next year, and Bruno Langlois had done extremely well in 2011 as well. You know, I think he, I can't, I think he was seventh. So we had, you know, Will in second and Bruno in the top 10. And actually Lucas User was in the break all day and he won all the sprints and KOMs. So we had those prizes. Like we just had this like unexpectedly amazing race. Like it was actually the best race of the spring campaign. Obviously because of all that, in 2012, we were just really excited about the race. You know, we're just like, this is our race, man. Like this, we're, we, everybody had it on the map from the early part of the season. All the guys wanted to go and we just, we took the race quite seriously, you know? So we, we were focused on it. We were planning towards it. We were thinking about the guys and the team and who would go and how we would build into it and what that build would look like for each of the guys. We were prepared with the equipment. We brought in more staff so that we could have um, the right ground support and ground crews, uh, which in 2012 ended up being important because we didn't catch all those lucky breaks with the with the car for sure, you know. So in the in the car in 2012, I remember that I was definitely much more out of position than uh, than I was in 2011, and I wasn't able to keep the car in a place to service the guys that were in the front groups. For me, it was in the car. It was, and, you know, in races like that, you know, even the, you know, the people that are calling the race for the caravan, you know, so the, like the radio tour announcer in the first commissaire's car, they lose track of of everything that's going on too, right? These races get super chaotic. So you're going to go through, almost like these black hole periods where, you know, you're getting information about the race, but you're not getting the full picture about the race. So in 2012, uh, just because of where I was positioned with the car and how I wasn't able to keep it as forward as 2011, I wasn't aware that Ryan was in the front group. That was super delayed information that eventually got to me, which then meant I wasn't able to get through the groups to get up to the front to service Ryan because there were so many groups on the road. And then in the end, you know, when, you know, Ryan won, obviously, but, um, you know, normally you would have the car in position behind that group, but I actually didn't even get a chance to get there until I think I, I didn't get there until we were on the very final few finishing circuits in uh, Lan Elise, you know, so you'd come through this super chaotic war-like race and then you'd come into beautiful, beautiful little uh, Brittany village where the where the race finishes. And you do a, just a couple of circuits around the town that still have a couple of, well, just one gravel section on it. But it's almost like the ceremonial gravel section, kind of like the final section of, of cobbles in Perubay. Um, and we didn't get to Ryan until, you know, maybe the second last of those finishing circuits. And uh, yeah, it took us a long time to get to him. What do you remember about Roth's form at that time or even his his season up to up to that race? So he was really adjusting well to racing at that level. Like one I one thing I distinctly remember about um that year. So we had done a race, it was a bit earlier in the spring, the three days of West Flanders, and Ryan had ridden really well in in the prologue in that race and was sitting top 10 on GC. And I was there with him that year that in that race too. And I, I actually made mistakes, you know, in terms of how I chose to sort of set some priorities in the race and focus on certain guys. And I made a mistake underestimating how good Ryan was, you know. Um, it was definitely something I paid attention to when we came through the rest of the races of the spring into Trobro, but uh, yeah, he was going really, really well, you know, like he'd absorbed all the work of the previous year. He was going really, really well. I mean, all the guys were, all the guys were, were doing much, much better. Like it was, 
a pretty incredible progression for most of the guys in 2012. Like after having the first kind of shit kicker of a season in 2011, they were all improving. But Ryan was really good, really steady, you know. And uh, I, I mean, I can't say enough good things about my experiences working with Ryan. He was uh, always a super reliable guy, very humble, didn't talk a lot, but he was he could do some amazing things on a bike, that's for sure. And he was really good that spring. That was really evident, you know. And he wasn't breaking down, which was another thing that was, you know, super important in Europe. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for this this background on uh, that race 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks a ton, Matt. Always a pleasure. It's been 10 years since you won Trobro Leon. Before we get into that victory, I want to go back in time uh, even further. Do you remember your first encounter with Trobro Leon? Yeah, I do. It was it was just the year before, so in 2011, and I was scheduled to race it and, you know, circum- you know, things happened. I didn't actually end up starting the race, but I was still there uh, helping to support the guys that were racing. So I, I was actually in the car with Kevin Field in the passenger seat, just, you know, helping hand out bottles, you know, look at course maps as much as, you know, that's kind of what I recall. And then just the caravan being absolutely nuts um, because there's so much dust and small roads and, you know, mechanicals, crashes, chaos happening. So that was quite the experience. But yeah, I was there, but didn't race. And I, you know, remember Will Routley from our team doing really, really well and finishing second on the day. You mentioned dust and and a chaotic uh, sort of caravan. Can you tell me more about the actual route of Trobro Leon, which is in northwestern France? It's cool. It's really cool. Yeah, like it's it's basically a really big lap. In varying years, they've done it, you know, kind of counterclockwise or clockwise um and then you finish with some smaller circuits in the town you know maybe maybe some 5k laps sort of thing at the end but for the most part you have these dirt sections you know kind of littered throughout the course with most of them coming in the last 50 kilometers so that's kind of where the the race really starts to split up and, and things start to happen but um yeah yeah and i mean like it's not like it's it's kind of like gravel before gravel was really you know the thing and just just small little lanes farm lanes stuff like that and not too much elevation, you know, there's some small hills, but for the most part, it's just, you know, it can be some wind and small roads and hard, hard racing that kind of takes its toll. Yeah, I believe these dirt sections are called Ribbonu by the, uh, the locals. And are they kind of like double track? Is that how you might describe them? Some of them are kind of like there's just two lines because of, you know, the tractors or whatever that uses them are just, you know, their tire tracks are where you can race. And then the middle is kind of like a grass, you know, a bit of a grassy, you know, surface. So yeah, everything's like at least a car lane wide. Most of it's not much wider than that. But yeah, none of it's really like narrow. So yeah, kind of double track or like just a narrow car with for the most part. And where's the sweet spot to ride there? Is it, I guess it's in the the car track, the the, the tire track lanes? Yeah, it's not like cobbles where like sometimes you want to be in that central like kind of hump, you know? It's, yeah, it's just whatever is the smoothest, fastest line. So you might have a bit more debris and stuff in the middle. So it might make sense to just be in those tire tracks because they're just more used. So they're a bit bit easier for the, not traction, because there's not really cornering, but just just smoother and, and less, um, you know, potential for flats and things like that. What did you learn or what was your big takeaway from riding in the team car at Trobro in 2011? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, mostly I think we were just focused on the task at hand right so it's not like i was sitting there taking notes like "Hmm, maybe if i come back you know i'll do xyz i was mostly just like what's what's happening in the race what do the guys need um that sort of thing but yeah i guess in hindsight you know you do see how much chaos there is and how like so many one-day races like how important positioning is um you know especially if there's wind which you can have out there too so yeah I, i think just reinforcing you know best practices right that sort of thing so now let's move on to 2012 that was your fifth season on the team that was Team Race Pro when you started and then became Spider Tech powered by C10. How was your 2012 season before Trobro of that year? 
Yeah, it was pretty good. Like it wasn't, you know, amazing, but I definitely felt more comfortable in the races. And I think overall as a team, we were doing a lot better. So um, going into that, I had some, you know, okay results. Nothing, you know, nothing amazing because it was still quite high level of racing for us. But um, yeah, felt a lot more comfortable. And then just kind of came into a good patch of form around that week of the race um, based off of some harder stage racing and stuff like that before. Yeah, you did some some pretty significant races before that, like uh, Vuelta Andalusia, three days of West Flanders, uh, Copy Ibartoli in Italy, and then back to Belgium for three days of uh, Depana. How did you feel after after that particular block? Yeah, I just know it was like quite... We were also getting near, because I think I was only going to be there until the end of April. So I only had one more race after that. So just overall a bit of fatigue and then, yeah, compounded by, you know, a bunch of stage races and intense racing. So definitely was pretty tired a couple weeks out, but just listened to my body and tried to rest as much as possible because there wasn't really like any training to be done at that point. It was mostly just like races kind of every other day and stuff like that. So just tried to rest as much as I could to soak up that that workload. You wrote about your experience on the Canadian Cycling website a few years ago. And uh, one thing that struck me during this period is you, uh, you're just like taking walks and maybe going to the corner store to get chocolate. Was like, was that the nature of your recovery? Yeah, I mean, like, especially because, you know, 10 years ago in Belgium, there wasn't like, you're not streaming Netflix very easily, you know. So like, it's really like go for easy rides, take a nap, uh, read a book, you know tour around. There's really wasn't a lot of things to do. So yeah, I think you just kind of make the best of it. And, you know, that, that was that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty boring, but, um, you know, in hindsight, that was what was needed, right? There wasn't any, anything to be gained by going for a six hour ride or, you know, something like that. And then just before, or getting closer to Trobro, you did, uh, Pris and Perry Camembert and then Grand Prix Denain, I believe. Perry Camembert makes me think. Um, so, in terms of uh, unique prizes at at uh, bike races, with your your uh, attendance at Perry Camembert and uh, Trobro, well, why don't you tell us the prizes at both of those races? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure I don't know. I mean, it's not maybe not the main prize, but in Perry Camembert, as the name suggests, there's some cheese uh, for the victor. So. Um, I don't know if we had anyone really in the, in the hunt for that one for whatever reason, but yeah, big, big, huge wheel of brie. And then for Trobro, the, um, uniqueness, I guess, is that they have a little piglet. I don't even know what the history is, why there's, why there's a piglet, but they do give away a piglet to, I guess, the best local rider, because it's not really practical for everybody to bring a pig home. You've been asked sometimes, like, did you win a pig in 2012? But you, as a Canadian, don't win a pig. No, there was no pig. I didn't really even get to, like, they, there was no photo ops or anything with the pig, I think. Um, yeah, I just got my, uh, you know, got our uh, trophy and um, that was that. But, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm guessing I wouldn't have had a practical use for the pig. So it's probably best for the best that it, that it stayed in, in its homeland. I just that would be a, that would have been a nightmare trying to get it back into Canada. I'm sure. Have you been to any agricultural places? No, but I have a pig. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not checking that off on the customs form. That yeah, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's some live farm animals in our in our uh, luggage. <laughs> okay, so tell me about uh, the team's plan for Trobro Leon in 2012. I did speak with the team's sport director, Kevin Field. And he admitted that when you guys showed up in 2011, you were not prepared, which is, is kind of odd for Kevin Field. He's usually very um, meticulous. So what was the plan going into the race in 2012? Yeah, well, the first part of, I guess, the plan was to just be more prepared, right? Like, as you said, it's a bit of a unique race, so you don't know everything in advance, what you might want to do to optimize, you know, the performance. So, you know, there's a bit more attention to where we would have support staff right so mechanics swingers things like that um because you do have these gravel sections splitting up the race and the caravan could be all over the place and even if you could get back to the car right you're gonna just lose too many positions and stuff so that was the first element just really putting some effort into having a plan of support you know on the course on the day of the race and then the second element i guess was just like figuring out you know who do we have here in terms of riders what are their strengths weaknesses how can we best utilize everybody to get the best result 
And how were you feeling on that day? That day, uh, yeah, I I wouldn't say I felt bad. (laughs) That would be, (laughs) um, but yeah, I definitely had a decent day and, you know, others on the team were also riding well. So that, that always helps, right? When you have some extra depth and, and teammates around you. So yeah, we had a few guys going well on, on that particular day. But going back to the idea of like planning and logistics, did you guys have like people at, uh, you know, is it like Paris-Roubaix where you've got um, a guy on a, on a in this case, a, a dirt section with a, a set of wheels uh, just in case someone has a, has a mechanical or like what kind of infrastructure did you did you have out in the field? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. So we looked at the most um, from from the last year, looked at what are the sort of most difficult sectors, like where does it make sense to you know, utilize our resources and then just have them at the exit usually, or maybe on the sector, but it's a little bit more like logistically difficult to get onto the dirt and then get out of it. So most likely they're going to be at the exit, right? You come off of the dirt, you need a bottle, maybe you lost one or the race is split up or you've got a flat. So then you see, you know, this one, you're a mechanic on the side of the road. So yeah, we definitely had that sort of setup going on. Whereas I think the year before we probably didn't as much just because you don't know, right? It's just, it's just learning experience. What do you remember from the early part of that race? Like, what was the composition like? Where where were you? How are you doing at that point? Yeah, I think it was pretty standard. You know, like you, most races, especially in Europe, start quite fast. And until some sort of break gets established, it's just going to be a lot of attacks and things like that. So, you know, there, I think there was a moment where the race split up. Like, it was going quite hard. We had some wind in, in another dirt section. And so it did split up momentarily. I, my recollection is like a break probably went sometime after that and, st- and stabilized the race. Um, and then we were just kind of like, you know, trying to conserve and wait for the the final when the, the most difficult parts of the course come up. In your uh, story for our website, you mentioned that uh, you were in a front group with Will Routley. Now, was this after the break had sort of gone and you were just sort of to the front of the uh, front of the race? I think it was before the break went and then, yeah, the race had split up and we were both in the front group and he kind of, you'd have to ask Will for sure, but I'm pretty sure like you just said like, okay, like you got to like, you know, think a little bit about the final because it looks like you're going well, something to that effect. And and he was obviously very motivated because he'd been, you know, very close to the wind the year before. Do you remember if anybody had race radios? Like were you guys wired up with the, with the team car at all at that time? That's a good question. I feel like we should have been. They weren't not allowed at that point, unless they unless I'm really a way off. But I don't remember being on the radio, to be honest. Yeah, I mostly remember just kind of working with the guys, you know, on the road, right? So there wasn't like a lot of communication via radio with, with Kevin in the team car that I can remember. Yeah. It's funny because Kevin can't really remember either. <laughs> no, I feel like you'd have to look at pictures to see if there was an earpiece or something. But my my recollection is no. Yeah, same. Um. At one point, you had an issue with your chain, and it was on a dirt section. How did you manage that? Were were you able to just kind of fix it yourself, or did you wait for support? Did you find support? Yeah, I think it was just where the roads were really rough, and it bounced. My chain bounced off the outside of the chain ring, so I didn't have to get off. Or I just had to like kind of pause, you know, coast for a bit, work it back on with the you know with the shifter and stuff. So it wasn't like a major thing, but it was just at the point where things were happening. So I was kind of just. You know, wasn't able to react, but that, you know, yeah. So it was just like a moment of like minor drama, but nothing, nothing too significant. I'm guessing then you, you lost some places or were left behind. Did you, how did you feel about your race at that point? Did you think, oh, well, that, that cost it or, or what were your thoughts at that time? No, I don't think so. I think we still had probably at least 30-ish kilometers to go, maybe even a bit more. So, you know, there's still time for, for things to change. Um, I, I think I probably went to the back of the group. I wasn't really like in a great position anymore. But once we got off that dirt section, you know, that break had kind of rode, ridden away from us. And I was just in the, the second group basically on the road at that point, but not not very far behind. Okay. So then I'm trying to, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to piece a, a race together 10 years after. And it's really interesting because you kind of mentioned this earlier, uh, 2012 was a while ago, and uh, we don't have the same uh, like level of archival videos just hanging out on the on the web or on YouTube. There are some videos out there, but I believe it was Eric Bertou who got away, and then you and Benoit Jarier chased to 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 catch on to him. Can you actually take us back before that? Do you remember what was going on at the race before that? Yeah, so the the section where I had the little chain, you know, issue. Um, we got off of that and I don't know how many guys got away in that section, 
I would say it's probably around eight, six to eight, something along those lines. And, you know, like we had all, all the bigger French teams were there. There's probably a handful of pro continental French teams and world tour teams at the time. And so the group I was in was mostly comprised of riders on those teams. And the breakaway was also, you know, riders on those teams. So there wasn't a lot of impetus to sort of chase them, right? Because like, who's going to chase, you know, there's a couple guys that are maybe isolated and they want to get up there, but somehow I ended up bridging with another rider. I think there was another attack, like maybe there's an attack shortly after we got off the dirt, you know, we both bridged up to the breakaway and that kind of sealed off anyone else coming up at that point. Like no one else came up later, right? So we were the final members to get up there. And then, yeah, at that point, Jarier was from the early breakaway. So he was still in front of us solo. And then Bertu attacked from the breakaway and kind of shot past him. So now he's solo in front. Jarier's in no man's land. I'm, we're still in the breakaway, Will and I, with a handful of other guys. And then from there, I bridged up to Jarier. And then that's kind of how the final kind of played out amongst the three of us. At least that's my recollection. And like you said, there's no, not a lot of evidence. So we'll just take that as fact. <laughs> well, it jives. It jives with uh, <laughs> what, what I've seen out there. So there was a moment when there was three of you together, right? Jerry, Bertou, and you. And that was, that was what was left. Yeah, yeah. So once I got away with Jarier, we were basically chasing for quite a while, most of the final circuits. And we, you know, we had some time checks and things like that. And they were never really going in our favor until like the last 10K or less. And then all of a sudden, Bertou started to crack. He basically just ran out of gas. And he's, you know, he's like coming back to us. Like his gap is just now folding, right? And I'm I'm thinking like, this is crazy, right? Because, you know, we'd kind of resigned ourselves to racing for the podium. So now he's coming back. And then, yeah, we linked up with him probably about definitely on the last lap. So like less than three kilometers to go. And we were the three of us together for a brief moment. But I just decided to to test the waters and attack on the last little dirt section, which isn't all that significant. But I just, you know, said, let's let's see what happens. So I went for it. And that's, you know, how I got away solo to win the race. But in my mind, I was like, this can't be happening because I was just like, again, like I just kind of written off the fact that we would catch him. So then I'm like, is there someone else? You know, I was just questioning it because, like, again, I hadn't really considered the possibility that this could happen. So I was very sort of like, you know, never want to be the guy that posts up and you didn't actually win, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I want to get I want to get back into those feelings in a minute. But first, you said you were just testing. So when you when you sort of pulled away from those those guys, you were just like seeing what they had, if they could follow Um or were you were you like trying to actually drop them? Yeah, like it, it was, you know, it was a hard acceleration. But like, if I had to go again, I could go again sort of thing. It wasn't like all out, all out. But yeah, like they both obviously had a lot of fatigue and, and stuff. So I don't even know if they even tried to react, to be honest. It was kind of just like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> we'll let them go. We'll just keep going our pace. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I would be happy to play the sprint as well. But, you know, obviously it's better if you can get away solo because there's less chance of, you know, losing it in the end. So the uncertainty that you felt of just about like where you were in the race and possibly like, is this happening? Um, there are images, there's still, there's video that um, actually is posted on our website. I'll link it in the show notes. And you're looking at the the moto or, or the camera and you're, you're, it's like you're double checking with them. You're making some hand gestures like me, I'm in, I'm in the lead. I'm in the lead. You, were you thinking there might still be someone ahead at that point? Yeah, I just wanted to, again, like, I wanted to confirm 100% that, like, what I thought was the case was the case, right? And and they should know, at least hopefully they should know, right? Because they've been there all day, you know, that's their job, to lead the front of the race. So, yeah, I just wanted some confirmation. Because that, that also must mean there was no radios. Because obviously I could have asked Kevin, you know, I could have said, Kevin, I'm actually in first. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, just want to be sure. Although he might have even said... He didn't know because, again, like the communication and, and the chaos of the of the race, it's like... 100%. Maybe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Race radio, yeah, may not have been the best source of truth either at that point, for sure. How did the, how did the whole team celebrate the win? We were... Well, I think, yeah, we had a lot of uh, fun guys on the team. Kevin, Lacombe, Martin Gilbert, some other Quebecois riders. Um, help, helpful for us, they speak French. You know, I don't speak French. So they found a crepe place, um, which, you know, I think Brittany is known for. And so we went out and had some crepes and just, just, you know, like nothing, nothing crazy, but just a nice dinner together to, to sort of, yeah, celebrate the day. It was, it was quite enjoyable. 
And I guess I should also note that it, also Guillaume Boivin, your teammate, was in third. So it was a pretty it was a pretty big day for the team as well. Yeah, yeah, because they ended up mopping up uh, one of the other breakaway groups too. He got caught, so then there was just a small chase group left. So yeah, I guess Guillaume's group caught up to Will's group, and they were sprinting for third effectively, and he won that sprint against Arnaud Demar, I think, if my memory is correct, uh, who got fourth. So yeah, yeah, it was it was a very good race for the team. And like you said, you didn't you didn't end up seeing the pig at all on the podium. You didn't you at least make eye contact. No, not even not even eye contact. No, no. I mean, maybe I'm sure. I assume it's. I don't know how long pigs live for, but maybe it's still around somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody wants to look into that for us, that'd be great. Oh, that would be that would be a deep dive into Trobro. <laughs> Where are the pigs today? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we might not want to know those answers. <laughs> um. um what did the victory mean to you then at the time? Yeah, I think it was just like, I think like as bike riders, you know, a lot of times we tie like how we feel about things to our result. So, you know, at the time you're like, especially racing in Europe when you get, you know, a lot of beat downs and races and stuff, right? Where the races are just so, so difficult. So you're not always, you know, having somebody finish in the podium or or in, in contention for wins. So I think it was just nice to be able to confirm that, like, yeah, I don't suck at bike racing. I, we were able to do, you know, a good result in Europe at a, you know, relatively um, high-level race. So, yeah, just just a nice confirmation of, like, the work that we've done and, you know, that, like, things can uh, go well for you. Because, like, yeah, for the most part, my results were North American-based. So just, just nice to be able to, to win a race um, in Europe and... Yeah, kind of, I guess, check check that box. I don't know. <laughs> I was not much of like a box checker, but yeah, um, definitely a good good uh, result. Has the has the significance of that win changed throughout the past 10 years? Like, do, do you look at it any differently now or does it, does its meaning, has its meaning changed at all? Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I would, like, it's, it's, yeah, like it definitely has more sort of like, weight i think at the moment you know as things you know go into the in the past you know you don't think about them the same way but um um and then yeah i guess like with what i do now i feel like there's more stress <laughs> you know doing what i do now versus bike racing um or a different kind of stress so um yeah yeah i guess it's like i have a better perspective on like if it didn't go well you know i wouldn't i probably wouldn't be nearly as bummed out as i would have been then and vice versa that's interesting because i'm because you're you're a, a mortgage agent, and every job has its stress. But the fact that you could compare, I think people will find that interesting. Because most of us are more like the mortgage agent than the the bike rider. And to think that that um, say let's call it an office job, yes, can be more stressful than a bike. Ride. Yeah, like different kind of stress. Like I'm not stressed about crashing at seventy miles, you know, seventy kilometers an hour on a mountain descent right because it's raining and i'm freezing that's that's obviously off the table but yeah like as a bike racer your life is pretty simple um for the most part you know it's physically hard but for the most part yeah like you know if you go for a a five-hour ride then you don't have too much to do after that you know you have to think about um what's happening um Yes, your your calendar the next day sort of isn't as looming as as heavy on your on your present day because you've done your work for the day. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Which for this, yeah, it doesn't really ever stop. And you know, obviously, people are you know borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars and stuff like that, and they're making big transactions. So that's where I find that more stressful because there's more at stake. You know, whereas if yeah, if you have a bad bike race, well, there's probably going to be one next week, and you know, it's not great, but the stakes are relatively low comparatively. <laughs> Interesting. One thing that I find striking is that, so we're we're talking on the occasion that it's it's a little more than ten years ago since your win. In a way, it doesn't feel like ten years ago, but at the same time, you you I've been looking back at footage and and it, it's definitely time has passed in terms of like even bike technology and and just the 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 records we have from the event. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did have DI2. I do remember that. That was the first year we had DI2, at least as a team, um, on the bikes. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, yeah, obviously things have changed a lot. And I was talking, I think I had a message actually with Kevin not too long ago. And I was just like, because I haven't raced since 2019. I'm like, I don't know if I know anything about bike racing anymore. <laughs> it's, just, it's like it's changed so much. And when you're not in it every single day, right? Like, yeah, you don't, you don't necessarily keep up with everything. Will you be watching this year's edition? Um, if it's on somewhere online, I'll probably try. 
Yeah, but yeah, I couldn't throw it up for sure. I know there'll be some Canadians racing because I believe the um, the team that like Charles Etienne Christian's on Premier Tech, Premier Tech. Yeah, I believe they've got an invite, so there'll be some Canadians on the start line this year. But yeah, it's great that that team has come up and they're able to get exposure to stuff like this for sure. It's so invaluable. Well, thank you for your time. It's really cool to uh, to delve back into this race. It's a cool race. It's a cool. Um occasion uh, of your win and uh, yeah thanks for the time yeah i appreciate uh, the invite and yeah we'll see what happens this year it'll be a good good one for sure and that's the episode it is written and edited by me matthew piaro and i had help from web editors terry mccall and that guy, Matt Hansen. Thank you, Matt. A lot of help. A lot of help. Yeah, legitimately. You're, you're, you're being so modest. So so self-effacing. That's kind of how I am. This episode is produced by Adam Killick. He composed the music, too. Thanks to Ontario Creates for its support. And Matt, where am I going to see you next other than the office? Uh, probably, oh, you know what? Uh, we have a, a date on Friday night. Uh, we're going to end this week, and we're going to the Matamine Cycling Center to see some uh, some track. Oh, that's right. So not only is Trobro Leon on this weekend, not only is the Giro going, but there is the Nations Cup in Milton, Ontario, just down the street from us. Yeah, we can see some. We can see Kelsey Mitchell and and some of the others that are going to do some uh, probably some great rides. Yeah, yeah, it'll be an exciting weekend of track racing. And listeners, go back and listen to the previous podcast episode where we spoke with Kelsey Mitchell. It is a a great interview. She's always so fun to talk to, and that'll be a good preview for Milton. All right, Matt, well, you know, I'll see you on the boards. All right, sounds good. I mean, not literally, but... Well, I'll see you in the infield. We'll be in the infield. Yeah, right, right, not on the boards. If I'm on the boards, I'll probably probably get kicked out. All right, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Please rate and review the show. Ride safely, and we'll talk to you later.